Today's scripture reading is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 to 11. Again, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 to 11. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can reach under the chair in front of you and open the Bible to page 902. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same spirit. To another faith by the same spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everybody. It was good to see all, so many uh, of you last week, and finally to have a meal together outside. That was really a blast, and the food was uh, really excellent. So thank you to all those people that worked hard to put that together. And because of that, um, I think we kind of like going outside, eating when we can. I uh, thank you to, uh, I thank Edify. Uh, for putting together a meal at the end of this month, too. So I am in great expectation of these assortment of sandwiches. As we begin today's uh, message, let's start with a prayer. O God, source of all light, by your word you give light to the soul. Pour out upon us the spirit of wisdom and understanding that being taught by you in the Holy Scripture, our hearts and minds may be open to know the things that pertain to life and holiness through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Last week was Resurrection Sunday, and we were reminded as we gathered together how that gathering was possible. It was possible because of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one that calls us. He's the one that puts us together. And we are now going back to 1 Corinthians, continuing on what Paul is teaching us, on what it means to be a church, what it really means to be a body of Christ, what it means to gather and be put together by Christ. We continue with 1 Corinthians in chapter 12 of this letter. And the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the church in Corinth, but I'm also praying and hoping that what, the, the, what we see, uh, the current, I'm sorry, the, just what the church in Corinth faced are not very different from the current challenges that we face and the current state of the church. In particular, I do believe that CGS has faced some challenges in doctrine and teaching that perhaps we thought were normative, only to see here in the text that some traditions that we held could not be backed up by Scripture. More importantly, 
however, is that scripture does back, what does it back? And by the Holy Spirit, we get to witness its beauty. Behold the beauty of what the scriptures say. And this is why sola scriptura, which means by scripture alone, is such a beautiful and foundational doctrine for us and for the Reformation. What starts with sola scriptura leads to sola fide, sola gratia, and solus Christus, the doctrine that we have that we are saved by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, and they all culminate and end with soli deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. R.C. Sproul would note that the first four solas exist to preserve the last one, namely the glory of God. That's our telos. That's our purpose as we've gone over last week and even as a review this week in the first question in the Westminster Larger Catechism. What is the chief end of man? What is the telos that we have? And it's to glorify him and enjoy him forever. We saw this in one of the key passages of this letter in chapter 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That being said, some may respond with, ah, too much Bible, you know, too much Bible. And you have to wonder why someone would feel the need to say that especially if they are a professing Christian. You know, God spoke. His prophets and apostles wrote it down. It was handed to us for our benefit. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Could it be that if you don't believe or don't want to believe in the Bible, or even worse, only obey select portions of the Bible, meaning the portions that you decide that you want to follow, could it be that you want to make the final judgment concerning God's Word? You have become the judge deciding on what to reject and what to keep. And by placing yourself in that seat, you in actuality make a mockery of the Holy Scriptures, treating it like any other book, putting yourself then in the judgment seat. You know, I came across an account of a Jewish man who wanted to become a writer. And he was a secular Jew from a secular Jewish family. And that just means he didn't observe any of the Jewish laws but only identified as someone with a Jewish background. And as a young man, he knew that he, if he wanted to write novels, that he should read the writings of the greats, right? That's a very smart point. He was a smart teenager, a very smart young man. And at one point, he, he thought, I need to read the Gospels the Gospels in the Bible because he understood that there were no other writings in existence at the time when these were written like these accounts. 
These were detailed accounts that were masterfully told and written in a way where you didn't say everything, but the more you mined it, the more came out of it. And he was like, this is a masterful account, objectively speaking. He thought it was a masterful account that he should study if he's going to start writing novels. Mind you, he didn't believe in Jesus, but good writing is good writing is what he thought. So he took a Bible and he came home, he went to his room, he started reading it. And this is his recollection. He's now in his 60s, but he would recollect that his father just storming into his room in a rage saying that he is forbidden to read the Bible. He was a Jew for crying out loud. And he would later muse that he didn't think his father would have reacted in any, for, this way for any other thing. Uh, even, he would say, even if he had found, like he busted in his room, even if he found him with another woman in his bed, he probably wouldn't have acted that way. But for this one, for some reason, he acted this way, and he remembered that. Many, many decades later, Christ found him, and he looked back at this moment, and it stayed with him for some reason. You can try to treat this book like any other book, but that would be to ignore every single mark in history where the Word of God has shaped humans, communities, and even nations like this one. You may have heard recently a remark that no amendment to the Constitution is absolute. So you may have heard that remark in the news this past week. No amendment to the Constitution is absolute. So here's a little history lesson. Amendments to the Constitution don't give us our rights in this country. Amendments to the Constitution, like the Bill of Rights, like you've learned in second grade, recognize that there are inalienable rights given to us by our Creator. Subsequently, it means here are some of the things that the government does not have control over because God's sovereignty, God's sovereignty supersedes the government's sovereignty. And so you have to start to wonder, where did the writers and authors of the Constitution of this nation come up with such brazen ideas like the government can't dictate religious order to groups? A large majority of the people that started this nation had sailed from countries that persecuted them, that did not let them worship the way the Bible taught them to worship. We know famously of the pilgrims who landed on Plymouth Rock. They were running away from religious persecution. They wanted to live out what the scriptures taught them to obey. And after all this, one may wonder, and you, you would be wondering rightly, how can then we really know, how can we really know the true meaning of scripture? You say scripture this, scripture that, but don't all these denominations and other sects reflect the fact that we don't know everything that the Bible wants us to do. In fact, isn't like the, all these denominations and these separations proof that we cannot know? You know, the Reformation happened because it was clear 
that the church in Rome most undeniably left the Orthodox faith and scriptural mandates. And one of the mantras that came out of the Reformation and Protestant movement was Ecclesia Reformata, Semper Reformanda, Secundum Vermum Dei. Ecclesia Reformata, Semper Reformanda, Secundum Verbum Dei. The church reformed, always reforming, according to the word of God. That means there is a movement in the church. The church is not stagnant. There is a progression. There is a moving. And the progression isn't moving away from the word. Rather, the progression is moving to the word. So when this church was first founded four years ago, that's crazy, but four years ago when it was first founded, we started with the theme, Back to the Bible. And we meant it as we are going back to what we had left, but we also meant that we are going back and continually going to go back to what the Bible says and teaches. Liberals will always say things like, the Bible is a good launching pad into the unknown. Uh, anyway, but the, like people, they, they will say things like that, but what they really mean that the past was good in the past, but it's archaic, it's backward, and even bad if you adhere to these past laws. God then, by this kind of logic, is an ever-changing God because we can shape our realities now. I find it very intriguing that people who would profess their atheists, that don't believe in God, that only believe in the natural, are now saying that in my spirit I'm a different gender. So they do believe in the spirit somehow, and it doesn't match with the material world. But because we can shape our realities now, we are the gods, would be this kind of thinking and where would that naturally lead it naturally leads to the world becoming more secular more pagan more against the word of god the scriptures are not a launching pad it is the canon that we cling on to it is the measuring stick by which we measure ourselves it is our rule of faith. The scriptures are the word of God written down so that we as his people may come to faith and understanding. So how are we to understand the scriptures then? It's clear here in chapter 12 that it's by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives the believer understanding. The Holy Spirit opens our eyes and ears so that we are able to hear and clearly understand what God is saying in his word. That's why Paul started here in this chapter in verse 2, when the Corinthians were pagans, they were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. But the Corinthians, you are believers now. You don't go that way. You don't follow idols. And they needed to understand that the Spirit is the one that should be guiding them now. And then what that means is the Spirit does not contradict what is in the scriptures? People were exclaiming this. During their worship services, people were exclaiming, Jesus is accursed. We see this in verse 2. In these gatherings in Corinth, 
And I want to give you some background to this. Why would they say this, right? Why would people just randomly shout, Jesus is accursed? And the word is anathema. That means like, like cursed, like bad, right? So why would they be saying this? So Plato would write something called mania, right? Uh, he would write about something called mania. Mania, according to Plato, was divinely inspired. And thus, these were practices. Mania were these practices that would bring you closer to God because it's from God. And that's how these great blessings come to us. And these, this is important. This, I want to lay down this foundation because this is maybe one of the most misunderstood portions of the Bible, these, uh, this aspect of spiritual gifts. So I was telling Pastor Paul, Pastor Paul was like, what, what passage should I preach on next? And I was like, I don't know because I don't know how long I have to stay in this passage because there are so many misunderstandings. People have taken words out of context, like sentences out of context. So what we want to do is we want to go word by word, sentence by sentence, and I want to give you some of the background. And so Plato would write about something called mania, and these were divinely inspired. Thus, if you had this mania, it would bring you closer to God. That's how great blessings come to us. There are four divisions of this mania, but two notable ones that I'll say here are the mania of uh, prophetic divination and the mania of love, a.k.a. erotic mania, okay? These two, the reason why I'm pointing these two out of the four, are what we see exhibited in some form in the Corinthian church. The two that we see is the prophetic divination and the mania of erotic love, right? The late uh, British theologian Michael Green would put it in this helpful way. The Corinthians would have rated in ascending order this. On number three, which is the bottom, who's the most important? The teacher. The teacher is number three. Because, um, you know, he speaks rationally, intelligibly, right? But secondly is the prophet. And the first person on that list is the one that spoke Glossa, which is translated in your Bibles as tongues, but it really literally just means languages. So the first person is the one that spoke languages or tongues. So why is the teacher last? It's because he speaks intelligibly and it relies on rational dictums, right? He's didactic in his teaching. And so that's number three. Important, but number three. Number two is the prophet. Because while he does speak intelligibly, it is under this divine inspiration. That's why he's number two. Remember, closer to the divine. And number one, the first and the highest li on, the, on that list, the highest person that they honor, that they respect, that they put the most value on was the man who spoke glossa, which is this ecstatic speech. The word ecstatic is really close to the word, tied to the word uh, ecstasy, right? Because he spoke divine inspiration, but he spoke it unintelligibly. And this is, uh, this is a quote from Michael Green. Suppose the more a man loses self-possession, the more inspired by God he must be is to deny God his place in the rationale. You get this so far, right? 
So God is this amazing God, right? This is what they're thinking is God is amazing. We can't understand everything. So if you're divinely inspired by God, you're going to start speaking things that are unintelligible because that's closer to who God is, right? And to suppose that non-personal eruptions of ruach or spirit are the mark of inspiration is to forget that it is the spirit of Jesus with whom we are dealing implied that implied there is that Jesus is not irrational. Any such depersonalization of the spirit is also disparagement of the ethical. And if it doesn't matter how you behave, so as long as you have this mark of, as if it doesn't matter how you behave, so as long as you have this mark of divine inspiration on you. This is why in verse 2 we saw people were saying, Jesus is accursed. But no one was saying anything about it. No one was stopping them. They were saying all these crazy things. And no one was stopping because... If you said it in the ecstatic mode, right? If you said it in glossa or some prophetic frenzy, it must have been done by the Holy Spirit. So you can't touch that person. He's speaking in the Holy Spirit. He's saying all these things because he must be full of the Holy Spirit is what they thought. So they were saying all these crazy things. And Paul is saying, no, you can't say things like this. You can't say whatever you want just because you think you are filled with the Holy Spirit. It needs to be in line with the Word of God, as as we did the catechism today. The Word of God and the Spirit of God do not contradict. In fact, God uses both to teach and edify the church. But because this was happening, this led to jealousy within the group, pride, dissension, division, because all of this was masking, but it was really making Christian love and unity disappear. People wanted to be the one that was on top. And all you had to do was speak some gibberish. Shamalabala. And then all of a sudden, be like, whoa, what was that? That was crazy, right? And they would put you in this group. That's why it's so important. It's so important for our church to understand what gifts are. Are. Before I go to the specifics of the gifts, I just want us to understand what gifts are, what it means. And after I've told you about the ecstatic movement in the early church, where they adopted it from the Platonic movements, is it any surprise that we might still see imitations of this still around today when we don't understand the Word of God, reject the guidance of His Spirit, even claiming things that this is of God when it's against the very scriptures. In the Timaeus Discourse, Plato brings out the notion that when God inspires you, you go into a frenzy, an uncontrollable state, right? He called it the theos exalages. That's the divine release, right? Because if a powerful God really possessed you, how could a human, a mere human, stay in full control, right? So when you see these so-called outbreaks of the Spirit, people would just scream and then just fall on the floor squirming, and they would scream unintelligible words. That's what was happening. Is it really something new when we see this today? Or is it really something old, just dressed slightly different? What we, see, what we are seeing now in some churches is indeed an outbreak. But I assure you, it's not the outbreak of the Holy Spirit. It's something else breaking out over there. 
The Holy Spirit is vital to the life of a true believer. It is vital precisely because this is God's seal on us and to us. We are stamped by God the Father with the Holy Spirit. It is by the Spirit, as it says in verse 3, that we can say Jesus is Lord. In Romans 8, 9, it says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, that the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. You belong to God. You have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells in all those that are His. If you are a child of God, the Spirit of God resides in you. There are no exceptions to this. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, as it says in 2 Corinthians 3.17, there is freedom. That means you have freedom in Christ because the Holy Spirit dwells richly in you. And this is how we know that we can have the Word of Christ dwell richly in us, like it says in Colossians 3.16. And when the word of Christ is richly dwelling in us, we can teach, admonish each other in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. And because the Spirit of God dwells in us, we have gifts. Again, there is no exception to everything that I'm saying. If you are a child of God, you have the Spirit of God. And if you have the Spirit of God, you have gifts that the Spirit gives. And it's not some frenzied, pagan, idolatrous manifestation or mania, but rather a divine mark of the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul is saying in verse 2. <clears throat> Excuse me. You used to be led astray, carried away by these idolatrous manipulations, but no longer, no longer. Now to understand gifts, it should be apparent we need to understand then the source of these gifts. The source is found then in verses 4 to 7, which we'll go over this week, and I'll try to go over 8, 9, 10, 11 next week, the rest of this passage. But it's so important that we get this. Otherwise, We'll confuse gifts and we'll argue about cessations, continuation. Oh, I'm a cessationist. I'm a continuationist. While not even knowing what it means, that what, what gifts mean. What are you even arguing about if you don't understand what gifts are? And so the Holy Spirit dwells in every child of God without exception. And the Holy Spirit gives every one of his children gifts without exception. That's why we come up to this passage. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. I love that our announcement had an assortment of sandwiches, but it would have been more amazing if you used the variety part. But this part, this, this word, right, what we're seeing here. This sentence is a very Trinitarian statement, right? The same Spirit goes to the same Lord, which we just saw in the verse before. In verse 3, who's Lord? Who's Kurias, right? Who is the Lord? Jesus is Lord, right? And the same God, God which is understood as the Father. So we see the Spirit, we see the Son, 
we see the Father. The same Spirit, same Lord, same God. So there's one Spirit, one Christ, one God. And so that means how many wills? How many wills is there here? There's one will. Only one will. The unity of the church is to express the one will of God. On the other hand, there are then a variety, an assortment of gifts, a variety of service, and a variety of activities. The one God who has one will gives a variety of gifts from the get-go. It wouldn't make sense then, and we should say this, it wouldn't make sense if you use gifts contrary to God's will. And then that will be contrary to the church. Because there is a diversity of gifts, the unity of God, the unity of God and his church is emphasized here. We'll see this illustrated later in this chapter 2. You have all these gifts according to the will of God. These are supernatural gifts. These are not just natural gifts. These are supernatural gifts. That means the world does not have these particular gifts that the Spirit gives you at the level that you have this. I have the gift of teaching. Uh, The staff and I reminisced this past week about uh, the time I fell off the cliff the other day. And... uh, they mentioned how I joked. Maybe they thought it was to alleviate, you know, so they thought it was to alleviate any anxiety or concern that they had for me. But I joked that if I had died, I don't really worry because God would raise up another teacher. Now, I'm not saying that I'm just another cog in the wheel that's easily replaceable. That's not what I mean by that. When you receive a gift from the Holy Spirit, it is particular to you. I teach, but not in the same way another teacher teaches. So even within the same gift, we see a variety. But not everyone in the church is supposed to be the main teacher. And so even, I mean, imagine this. All of us, it's time to hear the word of the Lord, right? And then every single one of us come up here to the pulpit to to preach, Uh, that would be stupid. That's not unity. That's not what unity means, and that's just dumb. When we say that there's unity, it's not like a team huddled before the play, and they go break, and they all run to the wide receiver spot. That doesn't make any sense. Who's going to hike the ball? Who's going to throw the ball? Who's going to defend the person throwing the ball? who will catch the ball, etc. And the Spirit of God gives a variety of gifts because it is by those strengths that we have received that we can work together, function in unity, and make that awesome play. Understanding this would have the believer then, if you really understand this, the believer would not elevate themselves then, just like unlike the people in Corinth that you wouldn't elevate yourself. You wouldn't say this is number one, number two, number three. But you would rather humble yourselves before God and then humble yourselves before one another. When the people in Corinth would abuse these gifts, we saw division, we saw strife, we saw disunity, but the gifts are meant to do the opposite. And the word variety means exactly that. There are lots of gifts 
and the Spirit gets to decide who and what and how much of what combination of gifts you get. Who gets to decide all these things? Whose will is it? It's God. It's the Spirit of God who decides who gets what and how much and in what combination. You can have more than one gift. In fact, I'm sure that many, if not most of you, actually have more than one. Uh, it used to be in my earlier days uh, ministering that I would give like a, a spiritual test to people <clears throat> to test which spiritual gift you had. Some of you may remember. Um, that was foolish of me. I realized that that was foolish. You can't take some written test to find out what gift you have. And how come there were only like 13 gifts on that test? There are way more. And the listings in the Bible, if you look at all the listings of the gifts in the Bible, they're all in different places and they're different lists, right? And so people are like, we should compile every list that every single portion of the Bible has and then compile it and put it together. But perhaps... It's listed this way, separately in separate sections of the Bible, separate books of the Bible with different links of lists, right? Perhaps it's because the listing of the gifts is not important. It's not the point. The point then, what is the point? The point is shown here. The point is to appreciate the beauty of the diversity and variety of gifts because it points to the beauty of the giver, now, in the first verse, the word for gift of this chapter, we learned, is the word pneumaticon. It's a spirit thing. But in verse 4, the word gift, it's the same word in English, gift, but it's translated from a different Greek word. And that word is charismaton. That's where we get the word charisma, right? Someone with charisma is not only charming, but captivating. But charisma is from the Greek word charis. Charis means grace. No matter the gift, no matter the power or level of the gift, it is a gift of God's grace. That's what it means. Grace means you didn't deserve it. The gift that you have means you didn't do anything to deserve it. However big or small, however many or little you have, it was undeserved. It was a gift of pure grace. Salvation is a gift, and so are the charismatons. You know, it, it's uh, quite significant that we were able to hold a baptism last week. And as the parents were holding their child to be baptized they recognized this in their prayer. The baby was a gift. They didn't deserve her. And that leads me to my second point on gifts. A gift is undeserved, but it is also a heavy responsibility. Let's look at the next word after gift. It is a variety of services. It's service. There are a variety of gifts and now a variety of services. Service is from the word diakonion, right? And yes, it sounds like what it sounds like, but it, because it is what it sounds like. It sounds like a deacon because it is a derivation of the word diakonia. It means we are a servant and steward of this gift. 
The example we have is Christ when he said in Mark 10.45 that he came not to be served, but to serve. That's the same word, diakonion. That means this gift isn't for your own personal benefit. It isn't so that you could prop yourselves over others. If I have the gift of teaching, it naturally means that I can learn well. But it doesn't mean that I can just go to a lake house and study to my heart's content, no matter how much I want to do that, and don't see anybody. Be enamored by my own level of understanding. Preach a sermon into the recorder and just listen to myself over. That was deep, bro. That's silly. You guys laugh because it's silly. And as silly as that sounds, why do you not think that it's just as foolish that your gifts are not to build yourselves up? 1 Peter 4.10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. You got these gifts, as, an, as amazing as they are, but you got these gifts to serve others. If you think that you got these gifts to build yourself up, you are using these gifts outside of its intended purpose. That means you are not using these gifts in accordance with God's will. But that's exactly what the Corinthians and in the church did. They were using glossa, the gift of languages or tongue, just to edify themselves. This was an egregious break from the intended purpose and ultimately a perversion of the gift. This is why the teaching on gifts is so extensive that Paul uses three chapters. I mean, he didn't write the chapter numbers, but it's three chapters long. It goes all the way to chapter 14. Chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14, they're all on the gifts of God. And so what have we gone through so far? Number one, the gifts are undeserved. It's by grace, which should lead us to humility. And number two, it's not for your own benefit. It's for others, which leads us to stewardship. The third and last variety we see here in this passage is the word activity, a variety of activities, right? Activity is from the word Energamaton, or energema, and it sounds like the word energy. Gifts gives us energy. They give us energy to complete a task. It's exhilarating. It's truly refreshing. When you exercise your gift, you recognize it's undeserved, and so humble yourself. And in humbling yourself, you're able to serve and lift up others, and there is nothing energizing like serving others. You are given the ability to complete the task ahead of you. You are given this energy. You are energized to use these gifts. A lot of people talk to me about being burned out, right? But the more I study the Bible, the more I come to the realization that that is a made-up word and an unbiblical word. Now, I am not saying you, should say, you shouldn't say the word no. That's not what I'm saying. There are times where you should clearly say no, like when you don't have the gift. No one in the church is affirming it. However, you know, it's things like, 
can you teach this smaller group? And if you don't have the gift of teaching, then no is a good answer to, to say, no, I don't have the gift of teaching. No one thinks I have the gift of teaching. When I teach, people just leave. I don't know, whatever it is, right? However, if you do have the gift of teaching, why would you say no? If you see all these three things there as a gift, why would you say no? If it is a gift, then you will get energized to complete the task. God is the one that will sustain you. This is how even Paul started this letter. In chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, it says, "So why did he write this letter? So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end. He says it right there in the beginning of this letter. And so to seal the deal, he says in verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Manifestation is to make clear, it's to make visible, it's to make known. You take what is hidden and you put it outside, right? You make it visible, you take what is private and you put it in public, that's manifest. What are gifts for? Gifts were made to be public. There is no such thing as a private gift. And to make that clear, we see the word manifest used because we are to make these gifts public. The work of the Spirit is made public for the common good. Sumphero, that's the common good. Common good is just one Greek word, sumphero, and that's the word also, which means to bring together, gathered. That's what it means. It means gathered. It's not given for your own good, but it's a gift for those that are gathered. Everything that I just said now is again repeated in verse 11, which we'll get to next week. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. It's the one God, the same Holy Spirit, that apportions to gives each one as he wills. One God, one will. Every and each believer has this empowerment. Energeo is one, what we see in um, verse 11, which is, the third word that we saw for activity, right? Energize. So contrary to Greek thought and even the secular world, what they would have us believe, there is no spiritual elite when it comes to giftings. It isn't because I am better than you that I am up here. In fact, there are many, many portions in life, many parts of my life where I say, wow, I am so encouraged because you guys are so much better than me in these things. There is no spiritual elite when it comes to giftings. It's not because I am better than you that I'm up here. And while our points in our journey and our sanctification might be different, that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about sanctification, okay? We're talking about gifts, and we are all gifted by the Holy Spirit. And it's not what we earned. It's not what we deserved. Otherwise, it wouldn't be called a gift. It's given by God's Spirit with the purpose of, of serving others and not serving ourselves. That's why Paul would even go to say, if indeed, this is later on, we'll see, if indeed you have the gift of glossa, languages or tongues, 
You can't use it unless you have an interpreter, because then you'd only be edifying yourself. It must be edifying to those gathered. And this is what is not assumed just in glosa. This is assumed in all gifts. All gifts. You shouldn't be edifying yourselves. It must be edifying to the gathered. We'll see more about the specifics in these gifts as we continue on the passage next week. But this should at least signal to us that this is just the beginning of gifts. We have so much to learn. Paul has a lot more to say on gifts. But in the very least, we understand that these good things that we're given, even as we study on how good these gifts are, they're undeserved. All these gifts that we have are undeserved. And it points us to the greatest and first gift of all, being his son, Jesus Christ, who came and gave us his perfect life. So now when we exercise these gifts, we look to Jesus, remembering how he served us, remembering what a gift he was to us. And in exercising these gifts, we represent Christ in the world, giving him then all the glory, giving him all the glory. Soli Deo Gloria. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word that you give us. It humbles us as we are being taught, where at times we wanted to place ourselves above others, Lord, you humble us and teach us. In fact, that is not what you taught us. You said the first shall be last and the last shall be first, and that we are to serve one another. That is what you will this body and this church to be. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would energize us so that we are able to do the work that is set before us Lord, we thank you for this incredible word. Now as we reflect on it, we pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to transform us, make us more like you. Let's take this time to pray. And as we pray, let's thank God for the gifts that he gives us. Let's humble ourselves. Let's continue to look and see and find and pray and how we can serve others and trust that God will carry us all the way. Let's take this time to pray.